reading this morning comes from the Gospel Selection in the Revised Common Lectionary from the Gospel of Luke. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles now that you brought with you from home or that you'll find in your pews to the 19th chapter of Luke's Gospel. And we'll pick up at verse 28. And this morning as we read, as you listen, I want you to pay attention to the actions of those in the story, in particular, to the actions of those who are not Jesus. Beginning at verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he'd come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all of the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as I prepared for this week, there was something I noticed, something that, I had, that had never occurred to me before about what it is exactly we remember on Palm Sunday. In Luke's account, we read that that the disciples are doing what? What is it that the disciples are doing? They are celebrating, right? They're celebrating his entry into Jerusalem. He instructs them to to get a colt or a, a little gray donkey that he would ride into Jerusalem on. And Jesus is intentionally, intentionally fulfilling messianic prophecy. They would have known this passage from Zechariah 9.9 that says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples would have been familiar with this passage. Jesus certainly would have been familiar with this passage. And so to the disciples, it would seem that Jesus is finally embracing his Messiahship. Jesus is finally stepping into his kingship. After three years of ministry and miracles in which Jesus is continually stepping away and out of the spotlight, telling those that he heals not to speak of what has happened, defeating 5,000 and then stepping away to be on his own repeatedly 
being cagey in his responses to questions about his identity and purpose, Jesus' time has finally arrived. And the disciples are jubilant. All that they have seen, the blind made to see, the water to wine, the lame walking, Jesus is finally going to live into their hopes for who he is. They finally get to share him with the world. And all they know that he has come to do, restore the kingdom of Israel, overthrow the Roman occupiers, it is all now right there on the horizon. And so they celebrate, they shout words of praise, sing hymns of victory, they lay their cloaks on the ground. And we know that they, of course, were mistaken in understanding what the Messiah would do and particularly how it would all be accomplished. Their understanding of Christ's purpose was mistaken. And so what is it that we remember today? On Palm Sunday, we remember perhaps the most public display of the disciples' ignorance. I'd like you to hold up the palm that you were handed as you came in today. Each year on Palm Sunday, we wave palm branches, reenacting the mistaken expectations of the disciples. And what I want you to hear this morning is that this should give us You can put those down. Because even in their misunderstanding, the disciples are the major actors in this passage. And, and it's not as, as if all of their actions were their own. Jesus actually gives them jobs to do here, right? They're, they're given significant responsibility. They're instructed to acquire the cult, to bring it to Jesus. And, and the disciples go on to place their cloaks over the cult. They set Jesus upon it. They celebrate his entry. Jesus draws them into the process and delegates many of the tasks for the, for the day. And even, even without a complete understanding of what is really going on, these disciples manage to participate in God's mysterious plan for the redemption of the world. What they do, what they do on this day matters. And this is in keeping with the themes of the parable that immediately precede today's text. In fact, did you hear the way that this passage began in verse 28? In verse 28 we read, after Jesus had said this. This refers to the preceding parable that Jesus has just told. In the preceding verses, Jesus tells this parable of a master who goes away and leaves his servants in charge. The master goes away and gives his servants money. And upon his return, he rewards those servants who have made a profit with the money that he left with them. And he punishes those who simply hold on to what they've been given. It's a parable that begs us to ask questions of ourselves. What will we do 
with what we have been given. It begs us to remember that how we live matters to God and what we do with the time and resources that we've been given matters to God. And so this morning, I want you to consider what tasks might God be delegating to you? In a 2015 TED Talk on time management, New York Times best-selling author on productivity and leadership, Rory Vaden, tells this story of growing up. He says that when I was seven years old, when he was seven years old, he was, he was in the car with his mom, and he asked her, Mom, do I have a dad? And his mom, a, a single mother, for the first time, shared her story with him. That she was pregnant at 17, divorced a couple of years later, and then again at the age of 22. And a few months later, divorced Rory's biological father, just six months after Rory had been born. And so there she was at the age of 22, a single mom with no high school education, and she explained to Rory, I decided at that moment that I would never again have a man in my life because I'd never had good luck with men. And son, we may not have a lot, and we may not have a dad, but we will have love in our house. And after considering what she had shared, Rory said in, in the way only a seven-year-old can, I love our family, Mom. I really, really do. But I think it would be really cool to have a dad. To which she responded, okay. Well, if you want a dad, then why don't you go out and find yourself a good dad? And it just so happened that that day was Rory's first at a new martial arts center. He had been studying since he was five, and so he was put in a more advanced class. And, and that day, another new student walked in. It was a man, an adult, also his first day, but much older, with, with long hair and tattoos up and down his arms, about the scariest guy a seven-year-old could imagine. And they were paired up together as sparring partners. His name was Kevin, and it turned out that Kevin was a pretty nice guy. And they started advancing through the belts together, and after a few weeks, Kevin began giving Rory a ride home occasionally and then coming over to practice together on the weekends. And they started going to the movies together from time to time, and then Rory's mother started to join them on their trips to the movies. And then one day, his mom and Kevin went to the movies without Rory. And three years later, Kevin and Rory's mom were married. Two years after that, Kevin adopted him and became his dad. And now his mom and dad, his parents, they remain married some 20 years later. And as Rory tells it, the point of the story is you can delegate anything. 
And for some reason, God chooses to delegate to us, to we broken people. God chooses us to participate in what he is doing right here in this world. So friends, do not underestimate what God may have in mind for you. But I'd like you to consider who else participates here. The other actors in today's text are the Pharisees. And what, what role is it that these Pharisees play? They tell Jesus to quiet his disciples, to tell them to quiet down. And, and in doing so, they're attempting to keep the peace, that they're trying to manage the current political order, the, the Romans were the occupiers of Jerusalem, but they were provided with some certain religious freedoms. Historical theologian Justo Gonzalez writes this. He says, politically, the Pharisees tried to walk a fine line between open rebellion and total capitulation before Roman authorities. They valued the measure of religious and political freedom that Israel had and sought to prevent anything that could arouse the ire of Rome. The Pharisees sought to maintain that order by keeping the peace. And so for the good of the nation, Jesus must be silenced. And so we know, to keep the peace, they crucify the Prince of Peace. And I wonder, would we have done the same? Do we do this in some ways even now? Do we avoid the hard conversations, simply trying to keep the peace? In Isaiah, the Messiah is called the Prince of Peace, or, or more accurately, the Prince of Shalom. This word, shalom, has a far richer and deeper meaning than how we generally interpret the word peace. Albert Freelander, a, a Jewish rabbi, makes this comment about shalom. He says, it is hard to know what to say about peace itself. One thing I do know from my tradition is that shalom is not the absence of hostilities. Shalom, the Hebrew word, arises out of a notion of perfection. The opposite of shalom, of peace, is not war. It is imperfection. It is incompleteness. And we are learning, friends, in profound and unsettling ways that peace is not simply the cessation of hostilities as the Russian troops withdraw from the suburbs surrounding Kiev and the fighting there ceases what the Ukrainians are finding, mass graves, story of war crimes, is far from peace. And so how do we work towards this understanding of shalom, of God's peace? How do we move away from peace as the world might define it? It was seeking peace as the world defines it that led the Jewish authorities to crucify Jesus. Often, God's 
peace, God's shalom, appears, it appears impractical to the world. It's idealistic, and so in our sinful nature, we resist, we tell ourselves it's impossible. But if we are honest, when confronted with the imperfections of the world, we know it. We know it deep in our gut. Made in the image of God, we have an instinct within us that drives us to seek that shalom. It is this desire that we have for fairness and for justice. It's the involuntary response that we have to pain and suffering when we encounter it in the world. It's the feeling we get in the pit of our stomachs at seeing someone sleeping on the streets. And some of us have learned to repress those feelings, but they are there in all of us. It is only in reconnecting to this and awakening this sense that we, the church, can re-engage the world in meaningful ways. Seeking out God's peace or shalom means doing the hard things and not avoiding them, having the hard conversations and getting uncomfortable, not remaining silent. And the good news is that God's mysterious plan somehow supersedes our misguided attempts at peace. The cross teaches us that God will achieve shalom through us and in spite of us. Friends, as you leave today with your palm frond, I invite you to put it in your pocket, to place it on your end table, to put it in a drawer. May it be a reminder to you that somehow God takes our best and our worst and achieves God's end of shalom through us and in spite of us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.